That's in the air. This could be out. Diamond's underneath it. Will he catch it? He's got good hands. He's got him. Yes, he has. Diamond's got him in the deep. Having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. Hello and welcome to Couch Talk. Today's guest is Oliver Broom, who cycled his way from London, England to Brisbane, Australia to watch the 2010-11 Ashes. He talks about the planning involved in undertaking such a massive endeavour, how he handled the physical and mental aspects of it, and the effect it had on his world views, amongst other things. Welcome to the show, Ollie. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. It's the first day of the Ashes today, as we record this, and uh, the first day of the last Ashes, Down Under, it was when uh, you completed your epic cycling odyssey. It was. feels like a long time ago now. You know, this time, this time during the last Ashes, I was sitting in the stands in Brisbane, uh, resting my weary legs, and now I'm, now I'm talking to you in my flat in London, watching the... Uh, watching the, the action from Trent Bridge on my iPhone. So, <laughs> bit different, bit different. And, um, but, you know, times change. My, f- my first question to you is, how mental are you to uh, cycle your way through 23 countries, four continents for more than 14,000 miles and 400 days? Yeah, but it's the biggest cricket, biggest cricket uh, series in world cricket. So, you know, I, I had to show some commitment to get there. <laughs> Uh, and actually it was weird when I arrived, um, you know, seeing my parents were there, like jumping up and down, screaming, crying when I, when I arrived at the Gabba, uh, after whatever it was, 412 days on the road. And, um, and just the thought of, you know, cause I'd spoken to them two days earlier and the thought that they had flown from London to Brisbane in the intervening period, you know, in 36 <laughs> was really weird for me because I'd obviously put quite a lot of sweat and tears into my <laughs> my 14 months on the road and um and they and they and they just have brought home the, how easy it is to get to the other side of the world these days so yeah that would have been the other way of getting to Australia but I had an amazing adventure and uh wouldn't have changed anything was it, was your day job that bad that uh, you had to take on this brutal endeavor to energize your life like what, what what was it all about? I mean, of course, pretty you, know, you wanted to go for the ashes, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty bad. It was, it was, it was all right. Like I didn't, I just didn't love it. I found myself um, a few months before, uh, a few weeks before I decided to quit. Found myself uh, undertaking a challenge to eat a thousand raisins in one hour at my desk. And uh, my, my our secretary, my team secretary, she was counting out the raisins. And um, and then I did this challenge, and then I was eating these raisins, trying to do it in under an hour during the working day. And I thought, I'm nearly 30 years old. I'm trying to eat a thousand raisins in one hour at my desk. What what am I doing? Like this obviously isn't a job that I love. <laughs> it was it was a ridiculous challenge. And then I shortly after that became probably the first person ever to leave work for eating too many raisins. I had to go home and <laughs> and be sick. Um, and I just thought to myself, what am I what am I doing? You know. It, I just, I just didn't love, love what I was doing, and I, I feel like I wanted to love what I was doing. And um, although I didn't know at the time what I wanted that to be, um, I'd always fancied this idea of cycling off into the sunset and not coming back for a while. Uh, I used to, used to do a lot of cycling down on the south coast of Spain when I was living down there mm-hmm. um, as a gar- working as a gardener, and uh, I planned this trip across North Africa. 
this was in my early 20s. And then it just never happened because I ran out of money. And so it always been in the back of my mind, this, this idea of a long trip, just not, maybe not quite as long as Australia. How long was your planning session? And uh, I read in the book that you made an eight-day trip to Paris from yeah. London. Um, yes. So, yeah, talk about the planning. So, really, really slow trip to Paris. A friend and I, uh, basically, I, I had decided I wanted to go on a long bicycle ride. And so I persuaded her, my friend Laura, to, to come cycling with me. And we did a roundabout route to Paris, basically thinking if I could do eight days on the road, I could probably do... 400. Yeah, which is a fair, you know, it's a fair, fair call because really all you're doing is sitting on a bike the whole time and... You know, I would get plenty of rest days on a long journey. So, mm-hmm. and that worked out all right. But my back was absolute agony, and um, the cycle, you know, the geometry of my bike was really bad. So, so one of the main things I wanted to do when I decided to, you know, go on this long trip was get a decent bike. So there, there were a few things I had to plan like that, like get a decent bike, try and find funding for that. Um, you know. Uh, get sponsors for various things. I didn't bother trying to get fit because I thought I'd get fit on the road. Mm. That nearly cost me the whole journey, actually, because in the first few days on the road, I was in absolute agony, my knee. Mm. Uh, but uh, So there was there were a few bits of planning, but basically I, I had a job. I moved home with my parents in January 2009, kept my job, but wasn't able to tell any of my mates what I was planning because London's a small place. Mm-hmm. in a way and I knew that I knew that word might get out and then my bosses might find out I was planning to leave and then they would just sack me um and I needed to save the money so I moved home with my parents didn't save that much and then had a chat with a bloke one day in about August when I had decided that I was going to be cycling to the ashes so this is about three months before I left mm-hmm. and he he said to me you should just quit your job and that that will enable you then to spread the word get get message out on social media um, and, you know, write emails to, and letters to companies and try and get sponsorship. So I quit the next morning and uh, got sponsorship for most of, most of the things that I needed within a few weeks. The only thing I didn't get was funding for the trip, and that, that came very shortly before I left, which mm-hmm. was very lucky in the end. So you get on the trip, you have friends, you know, riding along with you as you leave the Grace Road gates. Uh, some of them get up to Dover, and then you're on your own. How did you break it into parts? You can't be you can't be thinking about cycling in, say, Asia when you're just in mainland Europe. Yeah, yeah, you're you're completely right. You have to um, sort of compartmentalize. You always talk about cricketers, don't you? Compartmentalizing, you know, mm-hmm. their thoughts and stuff. But I, I had to like compartmentalize the journey, so I had to think uh, in very short stretches to begin with. I, I talk about in my book, you know, how I. I actually had to reward myself with Haribo or some kind of food or whatever. You know, it was Haribo at the start, actually, or half a Mars bar or something. Mm-hmm. When I had completed, say, a five or ten kilometer stretch, then I would sit down, have myself a few Haribo, listen to a few of my favorite songs, and then I would starve myself of all those things for the next five or ten kilometers because that's how I got through the days at the start because my knee was quite painful. I wasn't really, really an experienced cyclist. I needed those motivations. And then it becomes a bit easier. You know, you start breaking it down from, from sort of five and ten kilometer sections. You start breaking it down into days. So you only think about the, the night ahead, the day ahead. And then you break it into weeks and, and eventually it becomes easier. But, um, yeah, you, you're right. You, you know, you can't start thinking about Australia. What, one of the tactics I, 
I used actually was so when people always said to me, "Where are you cycling to?" Mm. And at the at the, um, at the start, I used to say Australia, and then I would cycle off thinking, "Bloody hell, it's a long way to Australia." Yeah. Whereas I changed my mind whenever people asked me from a few weeks into the journey, you know, "Where are you cycling to?" I just used to say the name of the next town, or nice. you know, maybe even the ne- the neighbouring country, oh. and then and then people would still be you know people would still be amazed, but. It then got me thinking that sort of mindset, you know, because you can't can't think too far ahead on these things. And also, you want to enjoy where you are. You know, I was cycling through loads of beautiful places, and uh, no point no point looking ahead too much. That's true. That's true. You know, yeah. there was of course there must have been days on end when you probably never spoke to another soul, <laughs> or even if you did, you know, they didn't speak English. Um, mm. You know, that leaves a lot of time on the saddle for introspection and to explore some darker parts of your psyche. How yeah. was, how was yeah. that for you? <laughs> uh, well, I, one of the reasons I wanted to go in the first place was because I, I wanted to see how I'd cope sort of on my own. You know, I, I always f- uh, fancy myself as being better with people than being on my own, but, but I've always equally been quite happy on my own. So um, it was definitely a test. Like I always say that physically the challenge of cycling to Australia wasn't actually that tricky. It was mm. more, more of a mental challenge. And that's, you know, it varied in every country. In India, for example, I found it very difficult because I could never get away from people. And mm-hmm. I think it was the only place I felt lonely. In a country of 1.2 billion people, mm. how can you feel lonely? Um, but I did. And I, I sort of need, I, I wish I'd had the company of friends there, you know. But then in Australia... Uh, or Sudan, it's a different challenge because you're in the middle of nowhere. You don't speak to anyone um, for for days on end. And uh, yeah, I thought about a lot of stuff. From you know, through Germany, I I wrote down in my diary loads of stupid thoughts I had during the day, like why the hell do so many Germans still have moustaches? Uh, <laughs> how do you know? How do they still wear it to such devastating effect? Um, whereas it looks silly on an Englishman. Uh, but uh, and then I thought about you know life and what was going to happen when I got home and whether what I was doing was worthwhile and, you know, all sorts of things. So, yeah, plenty of time for thinking. But um, at the same time, my journey was definitely broken up very regularly by kind people I met. Mm. And um, so, so in a way, I didn't have as much thinking time as you might, as you might expect. Talking about self-doubt, how many times did you – there must have been plenty of times where you just thought of, you know, quitting – this goddamn thing and catch the next flight back to London. Yeah. But what kept you pushing through it? Well, I suppose, um, I knew I was having a great time, but there were definitely days when, yeah, I mean, most days there was a a moment when I thought, bloody hell, what am I doing? Like the wind was too strong or it was 55 degrees in the desert in Sudan or, or, you know, the, the 40th, group of motorcyclists had come up to me in India during that day and were crowding me or whatever. So yeah, there were definitely times. How did I keep going? Just, just, um, I love, I love that sort of, I knew I'd get through each problem, each bad moment. And I love the idea that, that I would get through it and that then I'd have a great day or a great week or whatever. I mean, I was always, I was always enjoying it. A very few moments in the trip did I think god I'm hating this I want to go home there are a couple of points in, in Thailand when I had uh, dengue fever I was in hospital for in bed for a couple of weeks in hospital for a week mm-hmm. um, you know that was a pretty low moment and 
I hadn't spoken to friends for weeks by the end of my time in hospital. I hadn't spoken to family, hadn't seen family for over a year. So it was quite, I was quite hard. But, you know, the ashes, the promise of the ashes kept me going. That was why I chose to cycle to a specific event because I knew that if I hadn't chosen to cycle to a specific event, mm -hmm. then I wouldn't have that, that thing dragging me onwards. You know, I met lots of people, lots of travelers on my, on my way through certain countries and nothing, nothing drove them on to travel. They were just sort of wandering and I, I couldn't travel like that. I need, I would need something to, to aim for. And, um, the greatest cricket rivalry, mm. It probably fits that bill. It definitely did. Kept me going. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, you, you getting sick with dengue fever uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. Any other parts where you got sick? And uh, I don't think you got into many accidents either. Uh, pretty uneventful from that point of view. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I often say that I wish I'd had a few more accidents because uh, <laughs> it would have made for good good topics for the book. But. Um, I think the books books turned out all right. There's plenty of there's sort of my overriding memory of the whole trip is um, is of kindness hmm. from people. I basically was really lucky, and I don't know if I did the trip again whether I would be as lucky. Probably not. I'd probably have a few scrapes, and I think probably if other people did it, they'd have the same. But I just think I was very lucky at the time. You know, people are generally really good, and there were situations where. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in trouble here. And then suddenly it would turn around and I would be welcomed into, you know, someone who I thought looked a bit dodgy. I'd be welcomed into their house or something for, for a food for food and a, and a night's sleep or whatever. So, it was, you know, I, I came into all these countries with preconceptions. And uh, generally the preconceptions I had, you know, especially in places like Syria, Sudan, mm. Bangladesh, you know, places where you don't hear a lot, awful lot of good news in the U.K., mm -hmm. Uh, my preconceptions were generally sort of smashed to pieces. Um, I mean, I had a few nasty bits, like getting knocked off. I got knocked off a bike in, off my bike in Bulgaria by a sort of passing truck. It wasn't really knocked off. It was more the fact that I jumped over this escarpment because I thought it was going to run me over. Mm. And, um, then I had some nasty scrapes with wild dogs in, in Turkey and um, a potentially episode, potential episode with a crocodile in Australia. But I managed to, managed to escape that. And... Um, Live to tell the tell the tale. Um, as you mentioned, you know uh, the random acts of kindness by strangers, by people giving you food, shelter, mm. tea, uh, wine, whatever. How was the understanding of the world for yourself changed uh, during the trip? How how did <laughs> it help you grow into a better person? Mm. Well, I knew. Um, I, w one of the things I'm delighted about is that I have a really positive outlook on Islamic countries now. There's an awful lot of you know, stuff in the, certainly in the British press and Western media about Islamic extremism and stuff. And I, and I was, I just, I have nothing but positive, positive view of, the, of mo all of the Islamic countries I travel through. So that, that for me was a, I mean, I had a sneaking suspicion that, I mean, I knew Islamism is is very big on hospitality and especially for travelers mm -hmm. so i had a, i had a suspicion that that i would be on the receiving end of plenty and and i was just delighted that i was that was fantastic you know it's it's a sort of it it's seen as a, a duty to to god to take in travelers and i was often you know taken in for the night given food uh, and the expectation is not that you will do anything in return it's just that you will be grateful and carry on your journey 
and um, you know, and you are expected to carry on your journey. You know, you're not the reason you're being given this hospitality is because you are a traveller, and you know, once you've been given hospitality, you then move on. You don't hang around and outstay your welcome. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was, um, that was really eye-opening for me. That was fantastic. And um, it's one of the abiding memories I have, you know, in places like Turkey, Sudan, Indonesia, Bangladesh. Um, great, great, great hospitality. Also, it was quite tricky sometimes wondering whether I was seen as a as a rich Westerner or whether because I was traveling on a bicycle, whether I was perceived as, you know, someone a bit more on the level of most of the, of the people living in the places I cycle through. There's always a bit of a dilemma I had, you know, when I was in the middle of the central Anatolian plateau in Turkey or in the middle of the uh, middle of India, you know, villages outside of Hyderabad and Mumbai and places. Yeah, you know, do I get my video camera out and start filming because I'm making a film about my trip or do I take photos? Do I get out all this expensive kit? Um, or do I, am I a bit more sensitive uh, because, you know, I'm traveling through pretty poor parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I could never hide from the fact that I was on an expensive-looking bike, but because I was on a bike, was I seen as as more more equal? I don't, I don't know. It was always a tricky, tricky thing to know. Um, and so I always struggle with that that dilemma. Um, you, 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 mentioned, uh, you mentioned in the book multiple times that, and I've read it on your blogs and stuff as well, that India was the hardest part of your journey. Yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you mentioned earlier in this conversation about the crowd. I mean, that humanity hits you in the face uh, when yeah. you, uh, you know, whether you get off a train or plane or a bus or whatever. You know, besides the fact that there are 1.2 billion people, what was it about India that made it really hard for you? Uh, it was the attention, and I think part of that was the fact that I was cycling across India on on one of one of Indians' favourite modes of transport, a bicycle, mm-hmm. and, um, and also that I was carrying a cricket bat with me. I mean, kids <laughs> used to chase me down, down streets, and I think I mentioned in the book, down the Konkan coast, south mm-hmm. of Mumbai. You know, I got chased through a village by, um, by tens of kids shouting, mongoose bat, mongoose bat. Um, how they could see it was a mongoose bat, I've got no idea. But, um, that, you know, at the start of my journey across India, that attention was fantastic. Uh, and I can't complain about the attention at all. It was just that I found it difficult, um, you know, constantly, constantly standing out like a sore thumb because I'm blonde and mm. tall and just burnt face and everything. You know, I, I just found that attention very difficult to deal with. It wouldn't have been so bad if it wasn't 45 degrees. You know, it was the build up to the monsoon. So it was April, May mm-hmm. uh, across India. And it was just it was just very intense and obviously the traffic uh, is is pretty is pretty crazy for an englishman who's grown up in the countryside where you know when i was growing up about three cars went past my door each day uh you know driving on the road between hyderabad and vijayawada uh was was one of the scariest moments of my life well, i say moment it was about two days um you know it's it's quite quite hard work but on the flip side of that you know india was Although it was the hardest part of my journey, it was, and I'm not just saying this because you've got lots of Indian listeners, I say it in the book as well. It was my favorite country, and it always, every time I, well, I've only been there twice, but both for quite long, long journeys. It's, it's definitely my favorite country. A wonderful place, just so much, so much kindness. And, you know, the flip side of the tension was the interest. You know, I was so grateful for the interest that the Indian, Indian 
fans especially took in my trip. Everywhere I went, I had people to stay with, people to visit, people to play cricket with, people to film my journey. Um, you know, there was there was lots of media interest. It was fantastic, and uh, you know, you know, I'm I'm thinking I'd love to write another book, and I know I know the location I want to uh, to go. I know where I want to go to write that book, and that's India. I, I love it. It's amazing, but I, I wouldn't necessarily cycle across it because <laughs> cycling across cycling across any country is quite can be quite tricky um but but cycling across india is just seriously hard work i i uh, i almost lost my mind you know i got knocked off the bike a couple of times um by other cyclists um one of the fan- fascinating things is that in india i um i left used to leave my bicycle with people in villages all over the place and mm-hmm. um cycle into a village in the middle of rural rural Andhra Pradesh or something and I would uh, go up to a shopkeeper and I would say you know can I leave my bike with you while I go and look for some food or whatever and they would always say yes and they would always look after my bike quite often they would clean it for me without me asking and then I'd go back to it half an hour an hour later and it would be there and someone would be looking after it and it would obviously not be stolen not be tampered with it was amazing I used to love trusting Indians with my um with my bicycle because it, I think it it brought us closer together. It made me feel good about the place. It made the people hopefully think that I was an all right traveler. And um, I, I loved trusting Indians with my bike. Fabulous. So you have written, uh, and I quote from the book, cycling is what you did rather than a chore that had to be completed. Yeah. But, but even then, when you you know rode into the GABA um, on the first day of the ashes, after 412 days on the road, how weird was the feeling that you didn't have to cycle anymore? It's really sad, actually. Yeah, really sad. You've, you've picked up on um, something that I don't think I necessarily touched on in the book because the book finishes when I arrive in Brisbane. But, you know, the come down from, uh, from finishing my trip was, was quite heavy. You know, I had a few weeks of enjoying the ashes and everything, watching all the matches. But then the thought that I was never going to get back on my bike and pedal across a continent again was really quite hard to deal with. You know, I loved, I loved moving every day, um, you know, seeing different places, meeting new people every day. But um, that's not, you know, I, I sort of slowly came to grips with the fact that that's not real life. You know, real life is, is putting down roots, you know, to a degree, hanging around with your mates, having a proper job. And, um, and so that's sort of what I got back to and, and I dealt with it okay. But it was, it was horrible to start with, yeah. Yeah, that was the excitement um, for a year and a bit on the road. Um, you did this. You did this for a great cause as well, for raising money for the yeah. Lord's Taverners as well as the uh, Neurological Society. If I if I'm yes. correct, the British Neurological Research Trust. Yeah, which um, yeah, which was great, and I was pleased to be able to help. I you know, I often get. Or hear from people who are going to do do these challenges, and they state that their reason for doing it is, you know, their reason for cycling to America or whatever is because they want to raise money for charity. And I always, I'm always a bit curious because there are many, many more easy ways to uh, raise money for charity than cycling, mm-hmm. you know, half around the world. So it wasn't, it wasn't the reason I went, um, but it, I was really pleased to be able to raise money. And if you can do a long journey like that. You know, people certainly English people. Um, it's a huge thing raising money for charity here for, for you know for big challenges, and people were more than happy to to give to give something back. And um, 
so yeah so i've been really happy to support those those two charities i must say i also um which we haven't touched on but you know i also played an awful lot of cricket in lots of weird and wonderful countries that you would never guess or that i certainly never knew uh, had thriving cricket scenes um you know places like serbia bulgaria um i played in turkey played taught some sudanese nomads cricket in in the desert in uh Wadi Halfa in Sudan uh, played in played in Indonesia on top of a mountain. So that was part of the the whole journey was playing these games of cricket, mm. and that's why my route looks a bit looks a bit odd because generally the people I found to play cricket with that's where I went. So if you know everything that you know now of what it takes to go on such an arduous odyssey that you had completed, would you do it again or recommend it to anyone else? Uh, yes, I would definitely recommend it to everyone. Lots of people say, "Oh, I can never do that," but trust me, there are very few people who couldn't do that. You know, f- certainly physically. Like, it, you know, once you get into the the rhythm of cycling, it's it's fine. It's just um, possibly the mental side, which is a little bit tougher. But you just have to uh, get up every morning and appreciate your surroundings and keep pedaling. So, yeah, I definitely recommend it to other people. Uh, but knowing what I know now, I wouldn't do it. No, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it just, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think you only want to do a journey that long. I think once in a lifetime, it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot of, as a percentage of my life, it's quite, quite a few, quite a few percent taken out of my life. there, just on the bike every day, mm. you know, not being near friends and, um, and family and, and I remember how tough some days were, so I wouldn't want to go through that again. But I think uh, I think everyone should should do um, should do that sort of adventure once. Yeah. All right. Your book, Cycling to the Ashes, is out now. Uh, I guess yeah. it came out on fourth of July, third of July. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just in time for the ashes. Plug away, yes. my friend. Plug away. Well, it's um, it's it's basically a book that's half about cricket and half about travel it sort of links the links the two themes of my trip but my bike ride and um and playing cricket all over the world into one neat 384 page packet so it's uh um i really enjoyed writing it actually the the main reason i i love writing it is because i got to live my trip all over again i basically cycled to australia mm-hmm. and then uh got back and and then cycled to australia again through the medium of writing a book which was great because i you know got to remember all the kind people um the interesting places the scary moments all that kind of stuff so it's all in the book and um i hope people enjoy it it's on uh, it's on amazon it's in bookshops in the uk i think you can find it in india it's definitely being published in australia uh, in the next few months and um yeah i hope people enjoy it they go to ollibroom.com oli room.com they can find out how to buy it and stuff and um hopefully they'll enjoy it all right i'll let you go with one last thing the ashes yeah. ashes began today what's your prediction yeah yeah so i'm watching it uh, i've been watching it while we've been talking just on the side here 70 for one we are on the first morning um what's my prediction i think uh, i think it'll be the same result as it was in australia three one three one yeah because i and I have to say, on uh, on Sky Sports on the first morning of the last uh, the last series, I predicted three one live on Sky Sports, and uh, and I was right, which is pretty amazing uh, because I'm never right about these things. But um, I think three one. Yeah. Yeah. All right, fantastic, Ollie. Fabulous talking to you. Good luck to you and your book, and I hope I can chat to you again soon. 
Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks very much for having me on, and um, I hope I hope the uh, Indian fans enjoy the Ashes as well, as well. even though even though it's Test cricket. Absolutely, <laughs> and sure they Fantastic. Cheers. 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 Cheers.